Come have a seat in this scald circle and hear the tale of the man of glass, as told by Casimir. Once upon a time there lived in the black forest a widow named Dame Barbara Monk. Her husband was a charcoal burner, and after his death she brought up her sixteen-year-old son to follow in his father's calling. So, young Peter Monk used to sit all through the week tending the woodkill, and going from time to time into the neighboring town to sell his charcoal. A charcoal burner has plenty of time for thought. When Peter sat at his kiln, he felt both depressed and impatient. A charcoal burner's life seemed a miserable sort of thing. How much pleasanter it would be to be a glassblower, a clockmaker, or one of those strolling musicians who played for the dancing on Sunday evenings. Even the timbermen on the other side of the forest had a better time. When they came over in their smart costumes and their outstretched legs and contented glances, sat and watched the dancers or smoked their long pipes, he thought they were the luckiest men in the world. And when they plunged their hands into their capacious pockets and drew out thick florins wherewith to gamble, he became more impatient and discontented than ever, and would slink away to his hut. There were three of these men he envied very much, though he was not sure which of them he envied most. One was a tall, fat man, with a red face, and he was supposed to be the richest in the district. He was called Big Ezekiel. The other was the tallest man in the forest. He was called Long Solomon and he was very friendly with all the most prosperous villagers, and took up more room in the inn than even a stout man, for he spread both elbows on the table and no one dared to complain, for he was too rich to offend. The third was a handsome young man, a splendid dancer who was nicknamed the King of the Ballroom. He had been apprenticed to a woodcutter and now seemed to be very well off. Some said he had found a pot of gold beneath a fir tree. Others thought he might have fished up a sack of gold out of the Rhine on one of his voyages. But all the same he was evidently a rich man and treated by old and young as if he were a prince. It is true they all had one fault which caused them to be disliked. They were terribly conceited. But then they had so much money they seemed to shake it off the very trees. No one else had so much to squander. While Peter Monk's father was alive, the neighbors often came to visit him, and they would talk about rich people and how they got their money. In these tales, the little glass man was mentioned as if he had something to do with it. Peter could partly remember a rhyme which, when properly recited, would make this little person appear. It began thus. Treasure man in forest old, more than a hundred years old, I'm told. You own this wood, if this be true, but he could remember no more. The last line had slipped his memory. Once, when his mother was speaking about the little last man, she told him it was only those who were born on a Sunday, between eleven and twelve, that the elf would show himself. Peter was one of the lucky ones because he was born one Sunday at noon. When the charcoal burner heard this, he was full of curiosity to try his luck. So, one day, after he had sold his charcoal, Instead of firing another furnace, he put on his Sunday suit, said goodbye to his mother, telling her he had business in the city, and made his way to the magic grove. These fir trees were on the highest point of the black forest. For some miles from the grove there were neither villages nor huts, for these superstitious peasants thought it not well to live too near. Accidents often happened to woodcutters who worked here and sometimes half-hewn trees fell on them and killed them. 
The raftmen would never attempt to float timbers from this grove, for it was believed that nothing but ill luck would follow. Peter Monk felt rather nervous, for there was no sound or sign, no voice but his own to be heard. Even the birds seemed to avoid this particular spot. At last he reached the highest point of the fir grove, and there stood a fir tree of immense size. This, he thought, is where the king of money lies. He took off his hat, made a deep bow to the tree, and said falteringly, Good morning, Mr. Glassman, but there was no reply. Perhaps I must repeat the verse, he thought and murmured. Treasure man in forest old, more than a hundred years, I'm told. You own this wood, if this be true. While he was speaking, he saw, to his amazement, a tiny figure looking out from behind the huge trunk. He fancied it was the glass man, and so quickly did the figure disappear, he thought he was mistaken. With hasty steps, Peter turned to go. The shadows of the forest seemed to go blacker every moment and it was not until he saw a hut in the distance that he began to feel less frightened. The people in the hut were woodcutters. They welcomed Peter without any questioning, gave him cider to drink, and when supper time came, a large fowl was set on the table. After supper, the wife and daughters began to spin, and the boys to carve wooden spoons and forks, while the host, his old father, and the guests sat and looked on. Outside in the forest a storm was raging. Heavy claps of thunder were heard, and it seemed as if large trees were falling. The boys wanted to go out, but the grandfather would not allow it. I will not let anyone outside this house. He who does will never return. Dutch Michael is cutting timber for a new raft tonight. Peter Monk, who had never before heard of Dutch Michael, asked the old man who he was. Dutch Michael is the lord of the forest, answered the old man. I will tell you about him, not only what I know, but what I have heard. More than a hundred years ago there lived a rich timber merchant who employed many laborers, and his business prospered, for he was a good man. One day, a stranger came to his door. His dress was that of the black forest peasants, but he was quite a head taller than any of them. The man asked for work, and the timber merchant, who saw that he was strong and active, quickly made terms with him and took him into his service. Michael was the best workman the merchant had ever had, for he equaled any three of the woodcutters. But after he worked for about six months, he went one day to his master and said, I am tired of cutting down trees. Suppose you let me be your raftsman. The merchant answered, I will not stand in your way, Michael. If you wish to go with the rafts, you can do so. Well, the rafts with which he would voyage were each composed of eight pieces of timber, and the last one was always the longest. But what do you think? On the evening before they were to start, Michael brought down eight pine logs as thick and long as never yet had been seen. Where he cut them, no one knows to this day. The merchant laughed to think of how much money these timbers would bring in, but Michael said, I shall take charge of this raft myself. I could not trust myself to thin planks. His master, to show his gratitude, would have given him a pair of wading boots. But Michael brought his own. My grandfather said positively they were five feet long. The raft started and Michael had already surprised the woodcutters. He still more surprised the timbermen. For instead of this long raft floating slowly along, he raced through the necker like an arrow. If the river turned suddenly, Michael jumped into the water, gave the logs a push right or left, and so they floated out into the stream... Then he leapt on the first log, bade them to fix their tow ropes, stuck his huge pole in the riverbed, and with one push, the raft flew ahead and left the trees and villages far behind. They reached Cologne in half the usual time, and it was there they usually sold their cargo. But Michael said, 
You are honest men and I understand our business. Do you think the people here use all this timber for themselves? Certainly not. They take it to Holland and sell it there. Let us sell the smaller logs here and take the rest to Holland ourselves and all the extra profit we make we will divide. To his proposition his comrades agreed partly because they wanted to see what Holland was like and partly on the count of money. They steered the rafts through the Rhine, Michael leading the way, and at Rotterdam they easily sold their timber at a higher price, while for Michael's special load he made a handsome bargain. The woodcutters were delighted to have had such luck, and Michael divided the profit, so much for the master and so much for each man, and then they sat down in the inn and drank and smoked and gambled, without a thought for the morrow. But after this experience, the peasants in the Black Forest looked upon Holland as paradise, and on Dutch Michael as its king. The masters, however, did not know anything about this, and with the Dutch money, slowly and surely came Dutch bad habits, among others, drinking and gambling. Dutch Michael, however, according to the story, suddenly disappeared, but he certainly is not dead. For over a hundred years he has haunted the forest, and it is said that he often helped peasants to get rich, but only at the cost of their immortal souls, of course. It is enough to say that he is still to be found on stormy nights in the pine woods, where no one dares to hew the trees or search for the thickest and longest firs. My father has seen him break a four-foot-thick trunk of a tree as easily as a twig. Such logs he gives to those who ask for his help, and voyages with them to Holland. But if I were king of the Dutch people, I would shoot him. For all of the ships built of Dutch Michael's timbers meet with accidents or sink to the bottom of the sea. That is the legend of Dutch Michael. And true enough it is that all the bad luck in the forest can be set down to his evil influence. I should not like to have anything to do with him. Nothing would persuade me to stand in big Ezekiel's or long Solomon's shoes. I believe the King of the Dancers is also in his power. The storm had ceased during the grandfather's tale, but the man gave Peter Monk a bag of hay for a pillow and wished him good night. Charcoal Burner Peter had never had such bad dreams as on that particular night. It seemed to him that Dutch Michael was in the room, but then he heard the song of the treasure man, and a voice whispered in his ear, You stupid Peter, though you were born punctually at twelve o'clock on Sunday, you cannot repeat the rhyme correctly. He woke with a start, and tried to think of a rhyme to end the verse, but he could not, and fell a-dreaming again. In the morning he lay half awake, still thinking of the verse. He heard some peasants passing the cottage on their way to the forest. One of them was singing. As I looked from the hillside to the valley at my feet, I saw my own dear maiden, so beautiful, so sweet. In a moment Peter's mind seemed to clear. That helps me to my rhyming. Now, glassman, I will have a word with you. He took leave of his kind host and went slowly towards the pine woods, thinking of the verse. At last he completed the line and with joyful cry leapt and ran up the hill. A huge man in rafter's dress with a long pole suddenly came from behind a tree. Peter Monk fell on his knees as he saw, so he thought, Dutch Michael coming towards him. Peter Monk, what are you doing here? asked the uncanny fellow in a deep, harsh voice. Uh, good morning, sir, answered Peter. I'm only going home. Peter Monk, said the old rascal, looking at him sharply, this is not your nearest way home. Perhaps not the nearest way, said Peter, but it is very warm and I thought the shade of here would be pleasant. Do not tell lies, Peter, shouted Dutch Michael angrily, or I will strike you to the earth. Do you think I do not see you talking to the little glass man? He is a cheat, the little rascal, and you won't get much worth from him. But he will get his bargain's worth. Peter, you annoy me. Fancy such a spirited lad who might see the world being content to burn charcoal. 
It is a dull life, said Peter. Well, we will alter that, continued Dutch Michael. You are not the first I've helped. Tell me, how many hundred dollars would you like to have? As he shook the money in his pockets, Peter's heart beat fast. He was hot and cold by turns, trembling with fear. Peter said, uh, Thank you, sir. I know who you are and do not wish to have anything to do with you. He ran away as fast as he could, but the forester overtook him and said, You won't regret it, Peter. You won't regret it. Don't run so fast. Listen to me. There is my boundary. When Peter heard this, he saw a small ditch not far away. He tried to cross the boundary and hurrying, jumped the ditch. And as Dutch Michael vaulted after him, the huge pole splintered into pieces and a long bit fell on Peter. Triumphantly, he seized this and threw it back to the huge forester. As he held it, he felt the stick twist in his hand and saw to his horror he held a horrible snake which darted its poisonous fangs at him. Its fearful head came nearer and nearer to his face, but then a fierce eagle swooped down, hit the snake's head with its sharp beak, and flew with it up into the air, while Dutch Michael fumed and raged. Quite delighted, Peter continued on his way. The path became steeper, and soon he reached the enchanted tree. He made a low bow, as he had on the previous day, and began... Treasure man in forest old, more than a hundred years, I'm told. You own this wood, if this be true. As Sunday's child, I come to you. The rhyme is not quite correct, but as it is you, I'll pass it, said a little boy. Peter looked around, and underneath a beautiful fir tree sat an old man in a black waistcoat and red stockings, with a large hat on his head. He was smoking a long pipe made of blue glass, and as Peter drew near, he noticed the coat, hat, and shoes were of colored glass, and it seemed as if the dwarf was still rather hot, for at every moment he mopped himself with a pocket handkerchief. You have just met Dutch Michael, said the little man. He would have beaten you, but I broke his magic pole, so now he can never use it again. Yes, treasure master, answered Peter, bowing low. You have indeed been good to me, and I thank you very much. I have come to ask your advice. A charcoal burner's life is a dull one. I cannot make money quickly while Ezekiel and the dance king seem to have coin like hemp seed. Peter, said the little man, earnestly and puffing at his pipe. Peter, do not talk like this. It is worthwhile to tempt fortune for a time, only to be more unhappy afterwards. You must not neglect your work. I can hardly think that the love of dancing brought you here. Peter blushed. No, said he, dancing is all very well, but you cannot blame me if I wish to improve my position. A charcoal burner's life is not much of a life, and glass blowers and timberers seem to have a much better time. You are a discontented lot, you men. If you are a glass blower, you would want to be a timber merchant, and if you are a timber merchant, you would still want a better position. However, it cannot be helped. If you promise me you will work hard, I will help you get what you wish, Peter. I give every Sunday child three wishes. The first two are free, and the third I can refuse if it is a foolish wish. Excellent, cried Peter. You are a splendid little man. Now I can have whatever I want. So I will first wish to dance better than the King of Dancers, and to always have as much gold in my pocket as big Ezekiel. You... Young stupid child, exclaimed the dwarf. What an idiotic wish. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. What good will it do you and your poor mother if you dance well? I will give you one more free wish. However, see you choose worthwhile. Peter scratched his head, and after some deliberation said, I should like to have the best and most complete glass factory in the forest, with sufficient means to work it well. Nothing else, Peter? asked the little man. Nothing else at all. Well, you can also give me a horse and a carriage. Oh, you stupid boy, cried the dwarf, and threw his pipe with such temper against the tree it broke into little pieces. Horses, carriages, wisdom, I tell you, prudence and intelligence are what you should desire, not horses and carriages. But though I am much disappointed in you, your second wish is not altogether foolish. A good glass factory is worth having. But if you had intelligence and prudence, the carriages and horses would follow as a matter of course. 
But little glassman, I still have one wish to spare so I could use that and wish for the prudence you think so important. No, not yet. You have to pass through many experiences before you get the third wish. Now, make haste home. Here are two thousand florins. More than enough for you. And don't come here again asking me for money, or I will hang you from the highest tree. Three days ago, old Frederick, the owner of the large glass factory in the forest, died. Go tomorrow morning to his widow and make a fair offer of the business. Be industrious and careful, and listen to what I am going to say. Beware of the village wine shop. It is a good friend to no one. The little man, as he was speaking, drew out a fresh pipe and filled it with a chopped fir cone and began to smoke. When it was well alight, he shook Peter kindly by the hand, gave him full directions as to the way, and disappeared in a cloud of smoke. When Peter reached home, he found his mother very anxious about him, for she thought that he must have been taken to serve as a soldier. He told her of his adventures and how he had met with a good friend in the forest who had given him a sum of money and advised him to choose another occupation and buy a glass factory. Although his mother had lived for more than thirty years in a charcoal burner's hut, she was vain enough to pride herself on the change in circumstances. As the mother of a son of who owns a glass factory, I am very different from neighbor Greta, and shall in future sit with better class people in church. Her son soon concluded his bargain with the heirs of old Frederick, and retained the workmen who had been there so long. And all day and all night they were blowing glass. And that is part one of The Man of Glass. Thank you for hearing our tale. If you enjoyed it, please take a look at our Patreon page and learn how you can earn great rewards while also supporting us. Once again, thank you for listening to our story. Come have a seat in the Skald Circle and hear part two of The Man of Glass, as told by Casimir. At first he liked the work. He rose early, walked to and fro in the factory, looked here, there, spoke to this one and that one, much to the amusement of his people, and his greatest pleasure was to watch them blowing glass. Sometimes he would try it himself and made all sorts of wonderfully shaped things. But soon he got tired of his new occupation and only visited the works an hour in the morning then every two days, then once a week, and his workmen did exactly as they liked. All this was the fault of the alehouse. On the Sunday after Peter came back from the pine forest, he went to the alehouse, and already there was the king of the dancers, footing it gaily, and big Ezekiel who was drinking and gambling. Peter put his hands in his pockets to see if the little glass man had kept his word, and lo, his pockets were full of gold and silver. His legs, too, felt as if they were wanted to be dancing, and when the first dance was over, he and his partner took the floor opposite of the king, and if he jumped three feet high, Peter sprang four feet, and if the king performed wonderful steps, Peter did the same, to the wonder and admiration of all who beheld him. When the people at the gathering heard that Peter had bought a glass factory, when they saw how every time a dance was over he threw money to the musicians, there was no end to their surprise. Some thought he must have found some money in the forest, others that he had come into some property, but all could see that he had plenty to spend. He would gamble away twenty gulden in one evening, and yet his pockets seemed full as ever. When Peter realized how lucky he was, he could hardly hide his pride and satisfaction. He threw money about freely and helped the poor generously, for he knew well enough how they suffered. His wonderful gift of dancing gave him the title of Emperor of the Dance. The hardest gamblers did not wager so much as he, so they lost less. But the more he lost, the more he won. It was just as the glassman had said. He had wished always to have as much money in his pocket as big Ezekiel, and so he did. If he lost thirty gulden, he still had the amount in his pocket, if Ezekiel had won. But by degrees he became a worse gambler than the veriest rascal in the Black Forest, and he was more often called Gambler than Emperor of the Dance, for he played all day long and neglected his work. And so the glass factory did very badly, owing to Peter's idleness and inattention to his business. Glass was made, certainly, and plenty of it, 
but in buying the business, Peter had neglected to buy the secrets of the manufacture of its particular sort of glass. He never really troubled to learn the art of glassmaking, and at last he sold the business at half price, realized just enough to pay his workmen the wages due. One evening as he went home from the village inn, he thought with disgust of all the wine he had drunk just to cheer his spirits. Then suddenly he noticed that someone was walking beside him, and behold, it was the little glass man. Peter flew into a rage and swore he was at the bottom of all his troubles. What do I want with a horse and carriage, he cried. What use to me was the factory and the glass? When I was a miserable charcoal burner, I lived happily. Now I never know when the bailiff will come and seize my goods for debt. Indeed, answered the little glass man. I am sorry to have been the cause of your unhappiness. Why did you choose such foolish wishes, though? Did I not say you should wish carefully? Prudence and understanding, Peter, are what you needed. I am no worse than the other young man, as I will prove, cried Peter as he seized the glass man roughly by the collar. Now I have you fast, treasure man. The third wish I will have now, and you must grant it. And I wish for two hundred thousand golden florins at once in a house, and oh dear, he cried, he's shaking his hands for the little glass man had changed himself into molten glass and burned his hand like a firebrand. And Peter saw him no more. For many days Peter remembered his burnt hand and his ingratitude and stupidity. Then, however, he recollected that not all was lost. For if the glass factory is sold, then there's always big Ezekiel. So long as he has money on Sunday, I am all right. Yes, Peter, if he has none... And so it happened. For one Sunday, Peter drove to the inn, and the people stretched their heads out the window, and one said, Here comes the gambler, and another, Yes, the wonderful dancer, the rich glass man. And a third shook his head and said, With riches comes trouble. I heard that Peter Monk is greatly in debt, and that it won't be long before the bailiff will seize his belongings. Peter greeted the frequenters of the inn as he got out of his carriage and cried, well, mine host, is big Ezekiel here? A deep voice cried, Yeah, here I am, Peter. Your place is kept for you, and we have just begun to play cards. So Peter Monk went into the bar parlor, felt in his pockets, and knew that Ezekiel must have had good luck, for his pockets were full of money. He sat down at the table and played, and won and lost as time went on. They played till honest folk had all gone home, saying it's time we were going home to our wives and children. But Peter persuaded Ezekiel to stay. He was rather unwilling, but at last said, Very well, I will count my money. Then we will play dice, the stakes to be five gulden. He drew out his purse and found he had barely one hundred gulden. So Peter knew he had about the same. But though Ezekiel had been winning all the evening, he was beginning to lose stake after stake, and it was perfectly furious. At last he laid his remaining five golden on the table and cried, Once more, if I lose, you must lend me some of your winnings, Peter. An honorable man is always ready to help another. Just as you like, even if it be a hundred golden, said Peter. Pleasantly, big Ezekiel shook the dice and threw fifteen. Ha! he cried. Now we shall see. Peter, however, threw eighteen, and a deep voice behind him said, That's the end of it all. He looked around, and there stood Dutch Michael behind him. Big Ezekiel did not seem to notice him, and asked Peter to lend him ten gulden. Half dreaming, Peter put his hand in his pocket, and there was no money. He felt in another pocket and found none. He turned his coat inside out, and none fell out and all at once he remembered his wish, always to have as much money as big Ezekiel. It had all vanished like smoke. The innkeeper and Ezekiel would not believe him, but after they searched his pockets and began to be indignant and said that Peter was a magician and had conjured away the money to his own house, Peter denied this, but appearances were against him. Ezekiel said he would spread the tale all through the black forest, and Peter Monk might be sure he would be burnt as a wizard. Then they seized him, tore the coat off his back, and threw him out of the house.
Not a star could be seen in the sky as Peter walked sadly home. But suddenly, he was aware of a dark figure which approached him and said, You have come to grief, Peter. All your luck is at an end. I could have told you how it would be when you ran from me to see this stupid little glass man. Now you see how much wiser is he who takes my advice. But I am sorry for you. No one has ever regretted coming to me for help. And remember this. I shall be all day tomorrow in the Pinewood. If you want to speak to me, you have only to call me. Peter knew all too well who was speaking to him, but he felt afraid to reply and ran home. When he went to his glass factory the next morning, there were not only no workmen there, but some very unwelcome visitors, namely the bailiff and his men. The bailiff wished Peter good morning and drew a long ledger in which he registered Peter's debts. Can you pay or not? asked the bailiff with a stern look. Answer me quickly, I have not much time to spare. Peter stammered out that he could not pay, that he was a ruined man and the bailiff had better value his house and shop. And while the bailiff and his men went poking and prying about, he thought, It's not so far to the pine woods. The little glass man has not done much for me. I will try my luck with Dutch Michael. He hastened to the pine wood. As he passed the spot where he had spoken with the glass man, it seemed to him that an unseen hand held him fast but he wrenched himself free and ran on to the boundary line and breathlessly called out, Mr. Dutch Michael! And immediately, the giant raftsman, pole in hand, stood before him. So you've come, said Michael, laughing. Did you want the skin off your back? Well, never mind. Your fault lay in going to the little glass man. When anyone makes a gift, it should be royally done, not as he does. But come. Let us go to my house. There we will see if we can come to terms. Come to terms, thought Peter. What does he mean? They first went up a steep path which led over a deep ravine. Dutch Michael strode over the rocks as if they were ordinary doorsteps, and Peter was nearly dropping with fatigue when his companion turned back and straightened his huge figure, stretching out an arm as long as a weaver's beam with a hand as broad as a table in the village wine shop, shouting in a voice as loud as a church bell, Seat yourself on my hand and hold on to my fingers. Peter, trembling, did as he was told. He sat on Michael's hand and held his thumb. Dutch Michael, when Peter was seated, had made himself smaller again, and they came to a house such as the richer peasants in the Black Forest live in and the room into which he led Peter was no different from the rooms of other people. The wooden clock on the wall, the hideous stove, the two benches were here as everywhere. Michael placed Peter at the table, then went out of the room, returning with a jar of wine and some glasses. He poured some out and they drank together, and Dutch Michael spoke of the misfortunes which Peter had experienced. Why should a clever fellow like you worry about these things? Do you really think that you are a villain? Has the bailiff's visit done you bodily harm? What's the matter with you? It is my heart, said Peter as he pressed his hand against his side, for it seemed to him that his heart was beating as if it would burst. You have thrown away many hundred gulden on beggars and servants, said Dutch Michael. What good has it done you? What was it prompted you to feel in your pocket every time a beggar stretched out his stupid hand? Your heart, your heart always your heart, not your eye, not your ear, but always your heart. You took things, as we say, you took too much heart. But how could I help it, cried Peter. I tried not to feel pity, but my heart always beat, so that it positively hurt me. You stupid boy, laughed Michael. So you are guided by your heart. Give it to me, and you will see you are just as well without it. G give you my heart, cried Peter, quite horrified at the idea. Then I shall die, certainly not. 
Certainly, if a surgeon took your heart out of your body in the course of an operation, you would die. But this is altogether a different thing. Come in here and strip yourself. Michael then rose and led Peter into an inner room. His heart seemed to contract as he passed in, for the first glimpse was anything but reassuring. On wooden shelves round the room were glass jars filled with spirit, and in each was a heart. One jar was secured with chains, and there was an inscription which Peter read with curiosity. There was Big Ezekiel's heart, the heart of the king of the dancers, the head forester's heart, and six hearts belonging to moneylenders, eight to recruiting sergeants, three to money changers. In short, there was a collection of the most undesirable hearts in the neighborhood for twenty miles around. Look, said Dutch Michael, all these people live free from care and sorrow. Do you not envy them? But what sort of heart do they possess? asked Peter. This sort, replied Dutch Michael, and showed him a stone heart on one of the shelves. Really? said Peter, stuttering. A, a heart of marble? That must feel very cold inside your body. Possibly, but not so very cold. Why should a heart be warm? In summer, when everything is hot, surely such a heart will be hot too, and best of all, neither anxiety, nor fear, nor foolish pity nor any sort of grief will cause such a heart one extra beat. And is all that you want, is that all you can give me? asked Peter. I, I want money, and you offer me a stone? Well, perhaps a hundred thousand gulden will be sufficient for you at first. With such a sum carefully handled, you ought soon become a millionaire. A hundred thousand, cried poor Peter joyfully. Here, Michael, give me the stone heart and the money, and the unquiet thing that beats here you can keep in your house as long as you like. I thought you were a sensible lad, said Dutch Michael, laughing heartily. Come, let us pledge each other, and then I will count out the money. So they sat down again, and drank, and drank till Peter fell fast asleep. He awoke to the ringing clang of the post horn, and lo, he was driving along in a beautiful coach, and the forest lay far behind him. At first he could not believe it was really he who was in the carriage, for even his clothes were different, but he remembered everything so clearly that at last all his doubts vanished, and he cried, I am really Peter the charcoal burner. That is a fact, but how wonderful everything is. He felt a little surprised as he passed the quiet cottage where he'd so long dwelt with his mother. But even when he thought of her, no tears came to his eyes. Well, I suppose homesickness and loneliness come from the heart, and thanks to Dutch Michael, mine is as cold as stone. He laid his hand on his heart, and it was quite still. If he keeps his word about the hundred thousand gilden as he had about my heart, I shall be very glad and with these words he sprang out of his carriage in order to search it thoroughly. At last he found a pocket in the lining which there were many thousand florins in gold and silver. Now I have all I want, he thought, and threw himself in the corner of the carriage and ordered the coat from the drive anywhere or everywhere. And that is part two of The Man of Glass. Thank you for hearing our tale. If you enjoyed it, please take a look at our Patreon page and learn how you can earn great rewards while also supporting us. A special thank you to Cat for their support this month. It means the world to us. Once again, thank you for listening to our story. Come have a seat in the Scarlet Circle, and hear Part 3 of The Man of Glass, as told by Casimir. For two years he drove hither and thither in every direction. His only home were the various inns, and the most beautiful things in the towns he visited possessed for him no pleasure. No picture, no house, no music, no pleasure stirred his feelings. His heart was as cold as stone, and his eyes and ears seemed closed to everything worth seeing or hearing. 
The only pleasure left to him consisted in eating, drinking, and sleeping, and his whole life was spent in driving about, living well, and sleeping from sheer boredom. Now and then he remembered that he once was gay and happy, but that was when he was poor and obliged to work. Then every modest pleasure delighted him, and he had often thought for hours together of the simple meals his mother would daily bring him while he was attending to his kiln. Now he certainly felt very comfortable and free from anxiety, but certainly neither contented nor happy. Formerly such little thing made him light-hearted. Now he never cared to laugh. It was neither homesickness nor loneliness, but desolate, joyless sort of life which determined him to seek his home once more. As he neared the house, he saw again for the first time each well-known landmark, each true, honest peasant of the forest as his ear heard the old familiar sounds. He laid his hand on his heart. Surely, he thought, my blood will flow faster for sure. But I forget, it is only stone. His first visit was to Dutch Michael, who welcomed him heartily. Michael, said he, I have been everywhere and seen everything, and I am thoroughly bored. Your stone heart has its drawbacks. I am never worried or sad, but, on the other hand, I do not enjoy anything, and it seems to me as if I only live half a life. Do give me back my own heart. I got quite used to its ways in my twenty-five years, and if it was sometimes a bad adviser, it was always at least cheerful and a contented heart. The Dutchman laughed scornfully. When you are dead, Peter Monk, you can have your own soft heart again. And you can feel both pleasure and pain. But here things must go on as they are. Settle down in the forest, build a house, marry a wife, and content yourself to your belongings. You have had nothing to do for some time past, so you blame this unfortunate heart because you found your days hang heavy on your hands. Peter realized that Michael was right, and determined to work hard so as to become richer and richer. It soon became known throughout the Black Forest that Peter the Charcoal Burner was back again, and apparently richer than formerly. His life fell into the old grooves. When he was without means, he was turned out of the wine shop. Now that he went there in style on Sunday, people shook him by the hand, asked him about his travels, and as he gambled as before for dollars with Ezekiel, he was respected too. He did not attempt glass-making again, but only the timber trade. This was, however, only a pretense. His real business was in corn and money. The half of the Black Forest would have borrowed of him, but he would lend nothing under ten percent interest. Now he and the bailiff were close friends, and if anyone did not repay Peter Monk to the day, the bailiff set out with his men, valued house and home, sold it at once, and turned father, mother, and children out into the forest. But by degrees this reacted on Peter, and for the unfortunate people besieged his house and tried to soften his hard heart. But he bought a pair of fierce bloodhounds, and this cat's music, as he called it, did not disturb him long. They snarled and growled, and the poor beggars ran shrieking away. No one worried him more than the old woman. This was none other than his old mother, Dame Monk. She was in great need and misery, for her house has been seized and sold, and although her son had returned rich, he had not troubled himself at all about her. She came occasionally and waited near his house. She dared not go inside, for once he had driven her out, and it grieved her sorely to have to accept charity from the neighbors while her son could easily provide for her in her old age. But his cold heart was never moved by her pleading looks, her trembling hand, her feeble figure. 
But when she knocked at his door on Sunday evenings, he would take a sixpence out of his pocket, and then grumbling all the time would pass it to her through the hole in the door. He did not care if she thanked him or not. He only remembered that he was poorer by his sixpence. At last Peter thought he would marry. He was particular in his choice, for he wanted the neighbors to envy his good fortune. So he rode through the forest, looked here, looked there, and none of the girls seemed good enough for him. At last he heard the most beautiful and notable girl in the whole forest was a woodcutter's daughter. She lived at home and managed her father's house, and never was seen at the village dances except at Easter time, or at the annual fair. When Peter heard of this charming girl, he determined to see her for himself, and rode to the house in which he had been told she lived. Her father received him with amazement and was still more surprised when he heard that this was rich Peter Monk who wished to become his son-in-law. He hoped that all Elizabeth's poverty and hard work was now at an end, and without consulting her he gave his consent. And the good child was so obedient to his wishes that without grumbling she became Mrs. Peter Monk. But it was not so pleasant for the poor girl as she had hoped. She was a good housekeeper, but nothing seemed to please Mr. Peter. She was compassionate to the poor, and as her husband was rich, she thought it was no harm in giving a penny to a beggar, a cup of wine to an old man. But when Peter noticed this one day, he said in a voice of thunder, Why do you waste my money and food on idle people and beggars? If you do it again, I will beat you. Poor Elizabeth cried and wished herself back in her poor father's hut. If only she had known Peter's heart was of stone, she would not have wondered at his unkindness. So when she sat in the porch and a beggar man came near, she cast down her eyes so as not to see him, and clenched her hand in case she should be tempted to feel in her pocket for a halfpenny. So it was whispered all through the forest that the beautiful Elizabeth was even stingier than Peter Monk. But one day Elizabeth was sitting by her door spinning and singing a little song, and there came along a little old man carrying a heavy sack, and she heard him coughing quite badly. As Elizabeth watched him, she thought how sad it was that such an old man should have to carry such a heavy burden. Slowly the little old man came along, and when he was not far from Elizabeth, he almost fell beneath the weight of the sack. Have pity, dear lady, he said, and give me some water to drink. I cannot go any further and shall perish with thirst. But you are too old to carry such a heavy load, said Elizabeth. Alas, said the old man, I have no choice. I must earn a living. Uh, but such a rich lady as you, you cannot think how delicious a drink of cold water is on such a hot day. When she heard this, Elizabeth hurried into the house, took a jug and filled it with water. Then as she was returning with it and saw the little man looking so tired and forlorn and sitting on the sack, she thought that as her husband was not at home, she would bring him something better. So she found a goblet, filled it with wine, cut a slice of bread, and gave it to the old man. A glass of wine may be better for you than water, as you are so old, said she. But do not drink too fast, and eat some bread with it. The little man seemed overcome with surprise, and large tears stood in his old eyes. He drank the wine and said, I have lived many years, but... Never have I met anyone who is so good and kind as you, Dame Elizabeth. You will surely meet with your reward in this world and the next. So she will, and part of her reward she shall get at once, shouted a horrible voice, and looking round they saw Peter's furious face. And so you give my best wine to beggar folks and let tramps drink out of my own goblet. There, take your reward. Dame Elizabeth started to her feet and begged his forgiveness. 
But that heart of stone had no pity, and Peter hit his wife on the forehead with the handle of his whip, with such force that she fell lifeless into the old man's arms. When Peter saw this, it seemed as if he did feel some sort of shame, for he bent down to see if there was any signs of life. But the little man said in his well-known voice, Don't trouble yourself, Peter. This was the loveliest flower in the Black Forest. And you have destroyed it. It will never bloom again. Then Peter turned white as a ghost, and he said, So it is you, the treasure man. Well, what is done is done and cannot be undone. I hope, however, you will not charge me before the justices as a murderer. Wretch, said the little man. What good would it do me if I brought you to the gallows? No earthly justice need you fear, but a mightier, more righteous one. For you have sold your soul to the evil one. And if I have sold my heart, cried Peter, whose fault is it but yours? You got me into trouble, and to retrieve my position I had to seek other help. The whole disaster is your fault. But hardly had he said this that the little glass band suddenly became tall and strong. His eyes were like soup plates, his mouth like a hot oven, his breath burning flames. Peter threw himself down on his knees, and his stone heart was of so little protection that his limbs shook like an aspen tree. The wood spirit seized him roughly by the throat and threw him on the ground with such force that all Peter's bones cracked. You miserable worm, he cried in a voice of thunder. I could easily kill you for your abominable behavior to the lord of the forest. But for this dead woman's sake and for her generous kindness to me, I will give you eight days' grace. If you do not repent for your sins in that time, you will certainly not have another chance. It was quite late in the evening when some passers-by saw rich Peter Monk lying on the ground. They turned him over and felt to see if he still lived. At last one of them went into the house, brought water and sprinkled his face. Then Peter gave a deep sigh, opened his eyes, looked around and asked for his wife. No one had seen her. He thanked the men for their help and went into the house and looked all about. But Elizabeth was neither in the rooms, nor where she fell. All that he thought was a dreadful dream was evidently a horrible reality. Now that he was quite alone, terrible thoughts passed through his head. When he thought of his wife's death, he remembered also other evil deeds. The tears of poor people, the curses of his victims on whom he set his bloodhounds. He remembered his poor old mother and again of his poor dead Elizabeth. How could he face his old father-in-law when he asked, Where is my dear daughter? Where is your wife? He had dreadful dreams all night. And every moment he seemed to hear a sweet voice saying, Peter, pray for a kind heart. And then he awoke. He shut his eyes quickly again, for the warning voice could belong to no one else but his wife Elizabeth. The next day he went to the wine shop to distract his thoughts, and there sat big Ezekiel. Peter sat down by his side and there talked of this and that, of the fine weather, of war, of the harvest, and at last of death. Peter asked Ezekiel what he thought of death, and if he believed in life after death. Ezekiel answered that though the body was buried, the soul went either to heaven or hell. Then the heart is buried, asked Peter. Certainly, said Ezekiel, the heart is buried, but if the man has no heart, continued Peter. Ezekiel turned on him furiously. Do you wish to insult me? Do you mean to suggest that I have no heart? If you have one, it is made of stone, said Peter. Ezekiel stared, looked round to see if anyone was listening, and then said, How do you know? Is yours of stone, too? My heart has ceased to beat, at least here, said Peter, touching his breast. But tell me as you understand what I was meaning. What will become of our hearts? What does it matter, asked Ezekiel, laughing. Have you not to live on earth? Is that not enough? We need not think about the future. 
Perhaps not, but one does think, and if I have no fear for the present, I am as afraid of the future as any naughty little boy. Oh, that will be all right, said Ezekiel. I once asked a schoolmaster about it, and he said that after death their hearts are punished according to their deeds. Well, that may be, but it often annoys me my heart is so indifferent to everything. And they changed the subject. But in the night Peter heard a well-known voice whispering, Peter, pray for a kind heart. He knew no peace now that he had killed his wife. When he said to his neighbors that she had gone on a visit, he thought to himself, Where can she have gone? Six days passed, and each night he heard the voice and always remembered the wood spirit's warning. And on the seventh day he sprang up from his bed and cried, Now at last I will try if I can exchange this heart of mine, for the stone in my breast makes life only a miserable existence. He put on his Sunday suit as quickly as possible and ran to the fir grove. When he reached it, he dismounted near a thick clump of trees, tied his horse up and went as fast as he could to the brow of the hill. When he came to the large pine trees, he repeated the verse, Treasure man in the forest old, more than a hundred years I'm told, you own the land, if this be true, as Sunday's child I come to you. The little glass man came out at once but his manner was completely changed, and he was grave and sad. He wore a little coat of black glass, and a long mourning scarf hung down from his hat. What do you want? he asked in ungracious tones. I have only one wish, answered Peter with a downcast face. Can hearts of stone wish? asked the glass man. I have no desire to grant any wish of yours. You promised me three wishes, and I still have one to come. I can refuse to grant it if it is foolish, said the glass man, but you can tell me what you want. Take out this heart of stone and give me my own. Did I make the exchange, asked the glass man. Am I Dutch Michael who gives riches and cold hearts away? You must go to him. Alas, he will not give it back, said Peter. You annoy me with your wickedness, said the little man. After a few moments, though, but because your wish is not foolish, I cannot refuse my help. Listen, your heart can only be regained by cunning. Strength will avail you nothing, and it will not be difficult, for Michael is always dull, Michael, although he thinks himself very clever. So go at once to him and do as I tell you. And then the little last man gave Peter some instructions, and a little cross made of glass. Although he has no pity for you, he will help you if you hold this before him, and pray to our Redeemer. And when you have obtained your desire, come back to me. And that is part three of The Man of Glass. Thank you for hearing our tale. If you enjoyed it, please take a look at our Patreon page and learn how you can earn great rewards while also supporting us. A special thanks to Kat for their support this month. We greatly appreciate it. Once again, thank you for listening to our story. Come have a seat in the Scald Circle, and hear part four of the Man of Glass, as told by Casimir. Peter Monk took the little cross, and repeating to himself the old man's words, went to find Dutch Michael. He called him three times by name, and the raftsman stood before him. You have killed your wife, said Dutch Michael, smiling. You will have to leave the country for a time, for there will be an inquiry when the murder is discovered. And so I suppose you want some money, and have come to me for it. You are right, and I want a good deal this time. America's a long way off, answered Peter cautiously. Michael led them into his cottage. There he opened a drawer in which there was much money, and took out some rolls of gold and packets. While he was counting these, Peter said, You are a sad rascal, Dutch Michael. For you told me I have a stone heart in my breast, and you have my true heart. And isn't that true? asked Michael, astonished. Do you feel your heart still beating? You may have made it still, but it is still here, and Ezekiel has his, and it is he who told me how you had deceived us. But I assure you, said Michael seriously, 
you and Ezekiel and everyone who becomes rich through my help have such cold hearts as yours, and I have their hearts here in my room. That some people may believe, but during my travels I saw such things by the dozen. The hearts you keep in your cupboard are only made of wax. You are a rich rascal, but you are not a magician. This irritated the raftsman, and he threw open the cupboard door and cried, Come! I will loose the chains and you will see. There is Peter Monk's heart. Do you see how it beats? Could a wax heart beat like that? A real heart does not beat like that, said Peter Monk. Mine is still my own. No, you are no conjurer. I will convince you, said Michael eagerly. You shall feel that this is really your heart. He took it in his hand, tore open Peter's waistcoat, and took a stone heart out of his side and showed it to him. Then he took the real heart and put it back in its right place, and immediately Peter felt it beating and was almost overcome with joy. How do you feel now? asked Michael, smiling. You are right, answered Peter, as he carefully laid his little glass cross on the table. And you admit I am a magician, but come here and I will put that stone heart back again. Beware, Dutch Michael, cried Peter, and held the cross before him. This time you are the victim. And he began to pray. And as he prayed, a strange thing happened, for Michael grew smaller and smaller, fell down and twisted and turned on the ground as if he were a worm, and sighed and groaned, and all the hearts began to pulse and beat, till it seemed as if it were a watchmaker's workroom. Peter was frightened. He ran out of the house and climbed the ravine as fast as he could, for he heard Dutch Michael shouting bitter curses after him. As he reached the pine forest, a dreadful storm arose. Lightning flashed in all directions and splintered the trees, but he reached the little glass man's dwelling in safety. His heart, he plainly felt, beat with joy. Then he remembered his life for the last few years and thought of the dreadful deed which had made him a wanderer up and down the forest. He realized what an awful crime he had committed when he killed his excellent wife, and crying bitterly he reached the glass man's cottage door. The treasure man sat beneath the huge fir tree smoking his pipe, and seemed more cheerful than before. Why are you crying, chuckled Burner Peter? Have you not got back your heart? Good little glass man, while I had a heart of stone, I never cried. Now it seems as if my heart will break when I think of my evil deeds. I set bloodhounds on the poor and sick, and you know perfectly well that I felled my dear wife to the ground with one blow of my whip. <sighs> Peter, you have been a good sinner, said the little man. The love of money and amusement has ruined you, but repentance atones. And if I felt sure that you were really sorry for your heart and wished to lead a better life, I would do something to help you. I am tired of life, said Peter, sorrowfully drooping his head. I can no longer enjoy it. Kill me, I pray, good treasure man, for I am a miserable wretch. Very well, answered the little man. If you wish it, so it shall be. He quietly took his pipe in hand knocked the ashes out, refilled it, and put it in his mouth. Then he reached slowly and went behind the fir tree. Peter stretched himself on the grass, weeping but patiently waiting the death blow. After a few moments he heard steps behind him and thought, Now all will soon be over. Look up, Peter Monk, cried the little glass man. He dashed the tears from his eyes and looked up and saw his mother and Elizabeth, his wife, who were both gazing kindly at him. He sprang up with a cry of joy. Then you are not dead, Elizabeth, and you are here too, mother. Can you ever forgive me? They will forgive you, said the glassman, because you feel true sorrow, and all shall be forgotten. Go home to your father's cottage, and be a charcoal burner as you were before. If you are worth anything, you will respect yourself and your occupation, and the neighbors will think more of you than if you had had ten tons of gold and the little glass man bade them farewell. Peter and Elizabeth and his mother thanked and blessed the little glass man and went home. 
But how surprised were they when they reached the old hut? It was now a pretty cottage. Though all the furnishings were simple, they were good and clean. This is the good little glassman's doing, cried Peter. How lovely, cried Dame Elizabeth. And how much more like a home it seems to me than that large house with all the workmen. From this day, Peter was an industrious, steady man. He was content with his lot, attended to his occupation, and in consequence became well-to-do and was respected in all the country round. He never quarreled with his wife, he honored his mother, and he gave to the poor who begged at his door. And when Dame Elizabeth's little son was born, Peter went into the pine forest and repeated his verse. But the little glass man did not appear. Treasure man, cried Peter loudly, listen to me. I only want to ask you to be my little son's godfather. But there was no answer. Only a slight breeze blew through the trees and scattered some fir cones among the grass. Very well, as you will not show yourself to me, I will take these as a souvenir, said Peter, putting the cones in his pockets, and he went home. But when he took off his waistcoat later and gave it to his mother to lay in the oak chest, there fell out four thick rolls of money, and when they opened them they found nothing but good golden dollars. And these were the little glass man's christening present to little Peter, so they lived happily and contented. And often when Peter was old and grey-headed, he would say, It is better to be satisfied with little than to have money and luxury and a cold, unfeeling heart. And that is the tale of the man of glass. Thank you for hearing our tale. If you enjoyed it, please take a look at our Patreon page and learn how you can earn great rewards while also supporting us. A special thank you to Kat for the support this month. It means the world to us. Once again, thank you for listening to our story.